0: Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her new book, Julie C. Suk, a professor of law at Fordham University School of Law and a leading expert on women's rights and constitutional law, examines how, despite official gender equality, the hidden workings of misogyny work against that equality. She's a comparative legal scholar who researches equality in relation to Law, History, Sociology, and Politics in the United States and Globally. Her book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, is published by the University of California Press, and it brings Professor Suk to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Although liberal constitutional democracies claim to uphold the rule of law. You write that they, quote, fail to investigate, punish, eradicate, and prevent violence against women from rape to femicide to workplace sexual harassment to campus sexual assault. Why do the women who are victims of these crimes have to prove that they're credible?
1: So I think there's just a deeper problem with— both the credibility of women and just social expectations that sometimes get expressed in the legal system. Even the notion that you have to go through the criminal legal system to prevent violence against women makes it incredibly difficult, I think, to do anything about um, ways of treating women that have become normal uh, and not even considered criminal.
0: Have some of the women who've been victims of crimes ended up on trial for bringing the truth
1: to light? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So my book doesn't really talk that much uh, about the difficulties faced by women in the criminal legal system. Uh, My book is more really uh, about constitutional law uh, and the ways in which women have struggled to try to reset entitlements in the context of constitutional law uh, because of the ways in which misogyny is entrenched structurally in a range of different legal systems, including the criminal legal system.
0: And you argue that misogyny is much worse for women than hatred. My dictionary defines misogyny as sexism, bias, bigotry, discrimination, intolerance, prejudice. Uh, And and that's worse than hatred?
1: Yes. So actually, um, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to reshape our understandings of what misogyny is so that the dictionary definition that you read me is either wrong or incomplete. Uh, I think that all of the things that we tend to think of as being misogyny has to do with hatred or discrimination or animus against women. When in fact, misogyny is actually a structure. It's a structure that we've inherited from a legal system of patriarchy. And since the Me Too movement There's been a lot of work in the academic literature, in philosophy and sociology about this, about trying to think of misogyny as not just being the individual acts of really monstrous men who either hate or have disdain for women, but connected to a larger legal framework in which it's expected that women put up with violence, sexual relations that they don't really want, Um, And very importantly, and the centerpiece of my book, uh, forced motherhood, which I think is becoming a much larger issue nationally because of the abortion bans that have gone into effect since the Supreme Court decided Dobbs versus Women's Health last year.
0: Well, that's still up in the air, but uh, it looks like it's going to be messy no matter what happens.
1: Well, it, it is. But one thing that has been difficult is that we have one of the oldest constitutions in the world. We have a constitution that was adopted by slave owning men in the 18th century uh, that um, set up a set of legal institutions and a legal order that did not assume that women were equal rights bearers. And I think one of the difficulties of that constitution, which was made also extremely difficult to amend, was that when we finally amended it to Uh, liberate enslaved uh, Black people after the Civil War in the 19th century, we amended it in a way, as the Supreme Court says in the Dobbs decision, in a way that really uh, did not necessarily include women's rights, because it was still the 19th century. Uh, But unfortunately, it's those provisions, the, the guarantee that we have in the Constitution of liberty and equality in the 14th Amendment, it's those provisions that we've always relied on through judicial interpretation to protect the right to abortion or just any women's rights to control their own destinies and I think one of the problems, uh, you say it's up in the air, uh, it is up in the air because after the Supreme Court said the, Supreme, uh, the Constitution doesn't protect a right to abortion, the legal effect of that is that in many states throughout the nation, affecting the lives of millions of people, women are now um, forced by the legal order uh, to bear children that they don't want. Uh, and one of the difficulties, to the extent that in our law, even before Dobbs, we had Roe Wade. We had a law that protected the right to abortion, uh, but it treated that right as a privacy right rather than um, what I argue is the more fundamental problem with forced motherhood. It's not that it's just an invasion on the woman's body. It's more that society benefits uh, from women's disproportionate contributions to childbearing uh, as well as to child rearing. So in addition to being pregnant, which is burdensome. Uh, for women. Uh, and um, the women are expected by many of our social and political and legal arrangements uh, to most of to do most of the childbearing with extremely little support from the state for any of those things. So the state does not really protect against pregnancy discrimination very well, even though we have laws against pregnancy discrimination. Until December of 2022, we didn't even have a law requiring employers at the federal level to accommodate pregnant workers on the job. We're one of the very few countries that are uh, wealthy advanced democracies that do not guarantee paid maternity or paid parental leave uh, at the national level. Uh, And so these are all ways in which the law expects women to do childbearing and childrearing to the benefit of society. We have a culture of life. We have citizens who are born, fed, and raised. Uh, without valuing women's contributions. Uh, It's almost that the law uh, and the government are extracting those contributions by women to childbearing and childrearing uh, without just compensation, uh, without supporting uh, women as fully equal citizens. And I argue that that's really the structure of misogyny, uh, this expectation that all of us benefit from women's uh, outsized sacrifices and forbearance uh, and that we have to understand that as being a, a really important part of what makes it meaningful. Actually, when there's hatred against women, because if you think about it, if misogyny were just like a, some men hating women, it would not. It would be a kind of. Uh, it would not be a huge problem. Uh, I think part of the difficulty with uh, animus against women is that it's powered by these larger structures that also um, benefit from women being kept down.
0: Well, doesn't it go all the way back to when patriarchy was established by Roman law, which then influenced Western legal systems?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I what I uh, try to do is trace back patriarchy as having many different features uh, that empowered. Uh, and so, something that lasted far beyond Roman law, well into the 19th and but, even early 20th century in the United States. But, but of Roman course, law, you dip- could trace it back to to Roman law, uh, which creates families in which the pater familias, the there's a head of the family, pater familias, yeah, who has, enor- yeah, uh, who has uh, enormous powers over uh, everyone else both the children as well as the wife Uh, and certainly over the children there's a power of life and death Uh, and if you think about the legal order that's based on only one legal person having absolute power and everyone else being dependent and relying on the patriarch as it were uh, for representation in the public world uh, i mean we you could think about that as a roman law feature, but if you get into even the 19th century in the United States, and I'm talking about the 19th century even after we get the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing that everybody has equal protection of the laws, even though everybody has equal protection of the laws, you still get Supreme Court decisions uh, for for a very long time after that uh, that say that women don't Women are not legal persons. They're represented by their husbands in the public sphere. That's why women don't have the vote, even though uh, we have law in the 19th century that says everyone has equal protection of the laws. Um, We don't get the right to vote until uh, 1920 with the 19th Amendment. This is an example of how patriarchy, even though you might say that there are things that we use in fundamental law, like a guarantee of equality or even equal suffrage for women, uh, even after we get those things, patriarchal gender relations still get enforced in other parts of the law uh, because the expectation uh, that women fulfill certain roles Uh, in the context of childbearing and childrearing, that those expectations are so deeply entrenched and remain entrenched even after the law says there's equality, even after the law says rape is prohibited uh, by the criminal law, uh, even after the law says sex discrimination in the workplace is prohibited, even after the law does all those things, uh, the expectations uh, that are Uh, generated by patriarchy remain. Well, wasn't the
0: institution of marriage initially conceived of as a way of establishing legal paternity and ensuring property rights between legitimate children and their father? Uh, And is that something that continues to this day? Because we still usually give children from a marriage their father's last name.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's changing a little bit now. Uh, But yes, certainly, and this is something that Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex looks at very carefully. That was uh,
0: 1949.
1: Is, absolutely. But I think it, it really was uh, a, a really important book, even for American feminism. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I think we all consider uh, the founding mother of constitutional gender equality and legal feminism in the United States, um, has often talked about how it was a real revelation for her uh, when she read Simone de Beauvoir's uh, The Second Sex in 1949. Uh, and there are long chapters in de Beauvoir's work about the origins of patriarchy. Uh, and of course, she's building on uh, Engels, uh, the uh, origins of uh, family and private property. And she's building on other sociologists and anthropologists who have written about this, uh, that look at patriarchy as something that emerges because men have to achieve control over women's reproductive lives in order to be able to ensure paternity. Uh, there isn't an obvious way in the way that it's it's obvious who the mother of the child is by the fact of giving birth, although that too is changing now with technology and surrogacy. Uh, but at least initially, it's easy to tell who the mother of a child is. It's more difficult to establish paternity, uh, but then you can establish legal rules so that even if you can't get to the absolute uh, bottom of who is the father of this child, uh, you can establish legal rules uh, about uh, who is the legal father of the child uh, by way of uh, marriage and family law. And then uh, the reason it's so important to do that is for the transgenerational uh, transmission of Property Uh, That is, it's not just that uh, you have private property, but that you want it to stay uh, within your bloodlines transgenerationally. And I think that's one explanation uh, as to the origins of the establishment of legal patriarchy. And it ends up being extremely powerful because it perpetuates the notion that in order for it to work, um, women have to be understood as Uh, being limited in in their sexual relations uh, to monogamy with a husband, so that this uh, regime by which you can determine the paternity and private property of the father, uh, that that can uh, persist, Uh, and then the expectation uh, that uh, women uh, devote themselves to both biological and social reproduction in the form of child care and child rearing. And I think those expectations last even after the law says men and women are equal. Uh, This is a very strong human rights norm after World War I and especially after World War II, where uh, every democracy in the world writes new constitutions that have, like it's a staple of constitutions around the world to say men and women have equal rights under the law, men and women are equal, Uh, or uh, the law shall not discriminate on the basis of a variety of characteristics, including sex, uh, that that becomes very common. Uh, But even though the law uh, declares that, it takes much longer to dismantle all of the different ways in which law, uh, without explicitly establishing patriarchy, enforces the expectations of motherhood, child rearing, and essentially benefits to society and benefits to men uh, based on the limitation of women's roles to reproduction.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Pit at Large is Julie C. Sook, S-U-K. Her latest book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, is published by University of California Press. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, And uh, we are streaming live at WBAI.org. I want to go back and talk a bit more about the precedent and how we arrived at this situation. Uh, In his commentaries on the laws of England, uh, 1765 to 1770, Blackstone offered this definition of marriage. Quote, By marriage, the husband and wife are one in person in law. That is, the very being Mm -hmm. or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage or at least is incorporated and consolidated into her husband. Did that say that women no longer existed once they got married, that married women had no legal existence and were completely subject to their husbands?
1: Well, it's... Essentially, yes. So, uh, of of course, obviously saying that someone is legally non-existent is different from saying that someone is socially or culturally non-existent or non-existent just as a, uh, in terms of our experience of uh, reality. But uh, what it means to say that they're legally non-existent is that they don't have the rights of legal personhood. Uh, in the same and way that children, law- ch- right, children don't have the rights of legal personhood, or they have extremely limited rights of legal personhood. But and but at that time, what was meant by the rights of legal personhood was the right to own property.
0: But also, and, women couldn't and enter contracts. Right women couldn't, uh, right. con- couldn't and enter the right contracts. Contract. They couldn't sue or be sued. Right to sue
1: or be sued. Exactly. Uh, so these are all features of being a full legal person. And,
0: and property that, that was owned d- by women prior to marriage went to their husbands.
1: Exactly. W- and w- money marriage, that was earned by a woman during
0: marriage belonged to her husband.
1: Absolutely. And so this is what I mean by patriarchy. Uh, and. What you're describing is the doctrine of coverture which makes women not legal persons under the law and this is this remains true even after the US Constitution gets the 14th amendment which says that no person shall be deprived of equal protection of the laws, that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, well, I want to uh, or go property back. without due process of the laws, uh, that these, uh, and so that remains the case, uh, and uh, and the Supreme Court is very clear about it, Right after those amendments are adopted in 1868, the Supreme Court says in 1873, in a case called Bradwell versus Illinois, that a woman, even if she studies and passes the bar exam to become a lawyer, uh, cannot be, or or the state is, it's fine for the state to deny her a license to practice law. Because of the obvious problem that she would not be able to sue or be sued, for example, if a client wanted to sue her for malpractice, they wouldn't be able to do that because she has no personhood as a married woman under the law.
0: And uh, not just those kinds of things, but when it came to sex, husbands uh, were entitled to sexual intercourse, were... Uh, and even with the exception to rape, they had the right to demand obedience from their wives, the right to use physical force against their wives, and decisions on family and children were given solely to the husband. And, and, that, and that was held upheld by the courts until the 20th century? Yes. Wow. So um, what arguments did they use? Just uh, that that was the way God wanted it?
1: Yeah, so that was actually um, what you're saying was actually in the opinion uh, in Bradwell versus Illinois, uh, that that was the uh, divine, uh, that 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 was divinely justified, uh, according to religious sources. Uh, But as a general matter, this was just accepted, uh, although not entirely. I mean, in in 1848, there is a women's rights convention at uh, Seneca Falls, that Elizabeth Cady
0: right. Stanton issued the Declaration of Sentiments that year.
1: Exactly right. And she basically uses the language of the Declaration of Independence, mimics it, to point out uh, what's wrong with all of the things that you've just mentioned. Uh, the idea that married women can't own their own property, they can't, they're excluded from professions, even if they manage to get a job outside the home, uh, those earnings from that job would belong to the husband. Uh, She does not independently have parental authority over her own children. Uh, If she were to get divorced, uh, which is rare, but if she were to get divorced, uh, her parental rights and authority over her own children could not be, would would not endure. Uh, And so these are all of the things that uh, feminist movements, both in the United States and in many other countries, were really interested in dismantling. And the primary ways in the 19th century was ensuring that women could vote. Uh, But of course, it was it became clear in the 20th century that the simple ability to vote did not necessarily lead to the changes necessary to dismantle these legal frameworks uh, that we're talking about. And a lot of them just uh, fell apart much more slowly and in many different ways. And so one of the things that I look at, uh, it's a question of strategy. How did women, whether they identified as feminists or not, how did they think about how they should seek a dismantling of a legal order that expected their subordination, that expected society to continue to benefit from all of the things that women were expected to do, particularly in the home, particularly with regard to staying pregnant and raising children and doing only those things? And, um, and even contributing economically in ways over which they had no control. Even if you contributed something, the husband could control uh, those wages. And a central area for organizing in the 19th century uh, for a lot of women, particularly in the Midwest, in the United States, in places that you don't necessarily associate with radical feminism, but in a lot of places, uh, women get interested in alcohol, Uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union is the largest political organization of women in the United States, larger than suffrage organizations by the end of the 19th century. And I have a chapter about women organizing against prohibition in my book as an example of women really thinking through how to reset the basic entitlements, because it's not just, although certainly they were also advocating for women's right to vote, But it's not just those kinds of political rights or the right to equality and non-discrimination that we think of as being so central to women's liberation and the end of patriarchy. Uh, One of the things they thought was really important was attacking some of the large corporations that they thought enabled toxic masculinity and male drunkenness. Uh, there was this practical problem, of course, that all of the things that we're thinking um, that we've mentioned—the uh, fact that the men uh, m- men controlled married women's earnings and property, and uh, women did not have parental authority over their own children—all of these things uh, may not be a problem for a lot of women, but they become a serious problem if the husband is abusive in any way. Uh, so uh, And of course, drunkenness was a hmm. large social problem in the 19th century, uh, but it was one that a lot of women called attention to because male drunkenness meant that men could just spend away the family wage, could spend away the woman's earnings as well, uh, made it really difficult if a woman wanted to uh, split from her drunk or abusive husband. Uh, if she had no parental authority, uh, then she couldn't. Um, that made it difficult. So uh, so it's really interesting to see how uh, alcohol in the 19th century uh, makes women think that in addition to advocating for suffrage and political rights and even some forms of legal equality in the economic and professional sphere, they also attack the liquor industry. Uh, They say that they need a a constitutional amendment uh, prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol. And I think this is one of the most fascinating movements in American history that we don't think about enough, because what women were seeking to do and and which they succeeded in doing in part uh, with prohibition was resetting the relations of power that existed between themselves and men, uh, they believe that some of those that that relationship of power was perpetuated uh, not only by the men on their own, uh, but by uh, legal structures uh, that gave outsized power to the liquor industry, uh, which then uh, enabled uh, abusive husbands uh, to Have much more harmful effects on women's lives than they might otherwise have. And that's the dynamic that I find super interesting that we don't, that it's not just abusive husbands or misogynists uh, that are the problem, but larger structures uh, that enable and empower.
0: On yesterday's show, we talked about the role the KKK played in getting prohibition enacted. So it's interesting that progressive women and the Ku Klux Klan were allies in this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that happens a little bit later, uh, but yeah. certainly one of the the other really uh, troubling thing, although I think it's a troubling fact that we need to confront about American democracy, is that under the constitutional structure that we have, uh, we cannot make significant constitutional changes without getting two thirds of the sitting Congress and three fourths of state legislatures to ratify an amendment And so uh, so generally, a lot of the changes that you get, even changes that you might think are positive, including the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And 1920 in 1920 uh, and the Prohibition Amendment from that same period. uh, At that time, uh, it's uh, it's really impossible to get any meaningful change uh, without engaging people who are white supremacists. Uh, And so there's plenty of racism in the women's movement for suffrage as well, which I think many writers like Martha Jones have uh, written about. Uh, And there's also uh, with regard to prohibition, I think part of the reason we often ignore the story that I'm telling in my book about women and not necessarily women we would label as progressive or feminist. uh, But if you actually look at what they wrote and what they did, it was, in fact, very progressive and feminist in terms of attacking a large industry that they thought Uh, enabled uh, male abuse of power within the home uh, in order to improve their own uh, day-to-day lives in the home, as well as make incremental changes through political organizing on all of the laws that uh, we're talking about. That is, this women's Christian temperance movement, in addition to talking about the alcohol industry and women's right to vote, also attacked uh, other areas of law having to do with the age of consent to sex, uh, because they wanted to protect Uh, young women who were uh, seduced or essentially raped uh, by older men. Uh, They also uh, advocated for uh, women's right to keep their own earnings or to have some control over their own earnings, even if they were married. And um, and certainly they also advocated for women's entry into the legal profession. Uh, that's something that began to change a little bit, even after the Supreme Court decision that said it was fine for states to exclude women from the legal profession. Uh, so, uh, so I think so we following- have to have- Yeah.
0: Following the passage of the 19th Amendment, suffragists moved to eliminate all legal rules that empowered men over women by proposing the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923.
1: Yes. So uh, as you might know, because I think we had an earlier conversation a few years ago, Leonard, Hmm. I wrote a book called We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, which issued a few years ago uh, about precisely that that uh, there were some suffragists though not all who after the 19th amendment was ratified thought that it was not going to be enough to dismantle all of the laws that subordinated women that is uh, and so they introduced the equal rights amendment with the purpose of in one constitutional amendment invalidating all the laws at the state or federal level that disadvantaged women. Uh, And of course, there was a big fight about it. Even amongst people who had uh, advocated for women's suffrage, there was a big fight because it was not clear what it would mean as a legal matter to say that men and women are equal. Uh, There are certainly, and we struggle with this problem even to this day, if you have a law that says that men and women always have to be treated the same, by any public policies or government. That's going to do a lot to dismantle some patriarchal relations. But if you're living in a world where there are a lot of patriarchal assumptions still made by a lot of people, sometimes it's necessary to treat men and women differently in order to overcome women's disadvantage. And I think because of that difficulty, there had there was a struggle about the Equal Rights Amendment that continues to today because the Equal Rights Amendment uh, it's still not totally officially complete in terms of its addition to the U.S. Constitution. Well, it
0: was finally adopted in 1972, but uh, in the 14th Amendment we haven't mentioned that that was even earlier the the Equal Protection Clause. Well, no, I've
1: been talking about the 14th Amendment all along. That's what I'm talking about in terms of our effort in the Constitution uh, to dismantle patriarchy. Uh, It was was kind of an effort, uh, but not a real effort, because it did officially say equal protection of the laws. Uh, But initially, in 1873, the Supreme Court did not interpret it as applying to the equality between women and men, the Supreme Court only starts interpreting the 14th Amendment to include a ban on sex discrimination by government a hundred years after. Uh, That is starting 1970, uh, the Supreme Court starts reading that 14th Amendment uh, to prohibit forms of discrimination against women.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Every day she tells her daughter, baby, you're not just a pretty face. She says "You gotta work much harder than every single man that's just the way. She goes to the same job every day She's overworked and underpaid Just cause the way her body's made Ain't that insane If you've never been told how you gotta be What you gotta wear I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Julie C. Sook. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. To get the book uh, or just to become a member, go online to give2wbai.org. To That's give, the number 2, wbai.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, 212-209-2950. We'll be happy to send you a copy of the book, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Julie C. Sook. Her book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About is published by the University of California Press. She is a professor of law at at Fordham University School of Law. And as she mentioned earlier, her previous book was We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, um, you write that misogyny is the aftermath of patriarchy. What do you mean by that? I'm quoting you.
1: Yes. Uh, so if we think of misogyny in the new definition that I'm talking about here, which is the continued ways in which there are expectations of women's sacrifices and forbearance to everyone's benefit and abuses of power that enforce uh, that extraction of women's pain, sacrifice, and forbearance uh, to the benefit of society uh, at women's expense, uh, that those are the things that are the aftermath of patriarchy. Because in uh, patriarchy, you had official legal rules, including uh, the ones that we have mentioned uh, specifically, that women have no legal personhood. They can't enter into contracts. They can't control any property. They can't, even if they make money, uh, g- they don't have control over it because it officially belongs and to the And how long did that last? They can't. Uh, that lasts well into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, on the one hand, we have the Equal Protection Clause, but it doesn't uh, give full legal personhood to women. Uh, And uh, certainly, even after the Equal Protection Clause in the United States, uh, we have legal rules that still, uh, at the state level, that exclude women from voting. Uh, And until we get the 19th Amendment in 1920, uh, women don't have the right to vote. Uh, But eventually, uh, in the 1970s, and this is something that uh, chapter one of my book called The Equal Protection of uh, Feminists and Misogynists, uh, gets into uh, that in the 1970s, the Equal Protection Clause is finally interpreted uh, in the 1970s, largely because of the pioneering work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a lawyer. uh, It gets interpreted to dismantle sex discrimination in the law. But what I point out is that it's not enough, actually, to dismantle patriarchy to get rid of, rid of patriarchal legal roles. So even though you get these rulings from the Supreme Court that say, well, the law can't assume that the woman is dependent, uh, the law can't assume Uh, that the men should have priority with regard to being the uh, executor of a dead person's estate. Uh, So all of those things are dismantled. All the ways in which the law treats men and women differently get dismantled in various landmark cases uh, in the 1970s. Uh, But what's really interesting is that the theory behind that uh, really comes from, through Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Of all places, Sweden. Uh, In Sweden, uh, although Sweden is not unique, uh, throughout the mid-20th century, after World War II, when all the constitutions in the world start including equal rights of women and men in their constitutions, uh, there are real debates about what that means. But there was a Uh, Swedish
0: feminist named Ellen Key who played a major role in, in discussing this.
1: Yeah, well, Ellen Key is somewhat earlier than this period that had an influence on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wrote a lot about the importance of the contributions of motherhood. And that was more in the early part of the 20th century, around the time that the suffragists in the United States uh, were agitating for the 19th Amendment. By the time we get to the 60s, it's a woman named Eva Moberg. Uh, and Ginsburg actually talks about Eva Moberg's writings, which Ginsburg encountered because Ginsburg was actually a law professor doing comparative law research uh, on Sweden. And so she goes to Sweden. And uh, a really important debate that's going on in Sweden, and it ends up being part of a very important report that the Swedish government writes, the United Nations, is about gender roles. And it's not just about how it's really confining for women to be expected to be only wife and mother and homemaker. That's very confining for women. But the incredibly important insight in Sweden is that these gender roles are not good for men either, because it deprives men of the opportunity to flourish as caregivers and fathers. Uh, and so the prime minister of Sweden travels to the United States in 1970 and gives a speech called The Emancipation of Man. Hmm. And he's talking about how if you really want to have gender emancipation, if you really want to end what's bad about patriarchy for everyone, including men and women, uh, then you really have to transform gender roles so that not only can women start working, uh, but also uh caregiving and housework have to be shared equally between women and men. And this is an idea that Ginsburg was very into. She often talked about it in her speeches. But if you think about the legal strategy that takes hold in the United States, one of the problems is that we dismantle patriarchy, uh, but we don't build gender equal infrastructures to replace it. Uh, and that's what I mean when I say that misogyny is the aftermath of patriarchy. If you dismantle it, uh, but then uh, you kind of leave it to the market to figure out what's going to happen, a lot of the old cultural expectations about women uh, being expected to be pregnant and um, have a second class status in the public sphere, in the workplace or in politics, those things are going to be perpetuated through other means. Whereas in Sweden, what's really interesting is that in Sweden, they weren't that in they didn't do that much to ensure completely equal or same treatment of women and men under the law. Uh, what they actually did was work on transforming their political institutions so that they'd be capable of passing legislation to build childcare centers and to fund parental leave for both women and men, not just maternity leave, but also paternity leave. Because if you don't have both maternity leave and paternity leave, you're not going to have that kind of major revolutionary transformation of gender roles uh, that's necessary to fully dismantle patriarchy. If you think of patriarchy as not only being a legal system, but the full set of cultural and social expectations that the legal system enforces. Uh, And I think that's a very important lesson for me, studying feminism, not just in the United States, but in other countries throughout the world, uh, that I think one of the things that we've gotten wrong in the United States is that we have focused, feminists uh, have focused too much on non-discrimination roles, making sure that we're not hating women, making sure that we're not discriminating against them, uh, making sure we're not engaged in the dictionary definition of misogyny, when in fact, uh, women remain disadvantaged in terms of pay, in terms of their positions in leadership, the, in uh, in many respects. And certainly now uh, there are serious problems uh, that we're having nationally because of the expectation that women remain pregnant against their will uh, by banning abortion, uh, that all of the, these things persist uh, because we haven't focused enough on the actual structures and actual issues um, Policies that maintain those gender roles, uh, all we've done uh, was ensure formally that the law doesn't discriminate against women. How is abortion Uh,
0: law being handled around the world? Uh, I'm sure there are some countries a lot more progressive in the rights being given to women regarding abortion than this country.
1: So, sure. I mean, I think the United States is really different from many other countries. I think the predominant approach that we see in many of the democracies that we consider are pure democracies, including France and Germany uh, and England, is that on the one hand, no country in the world went as far as Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade basically said that the state could not prohibit uh, or even significantly regulate abortions Uh, before viability. And that's what got overruled by the Supreme Court last term. Uh, In most countries around the world, uh, abortion is freely accessible in the first trimester, uh, usually up to the 11 to 13 or sometimes 14 week mark. Uh, But after that, in most countries around the world, uh, after the 14th week uh, and up until viability and obviously past viability, uh, abortion is highly uh, regulated. That is, you can only get an abortion, not at will, uh, but uh, to save the health or the life of the mother, and in cases of rape and incest, uh, and in cases where there are significant fetal abnormalities that would make it, I mean, so we're talking about cases where the fetus might uh, die uh, upon birth uh, because the abnormality is that serious. Uh, But in any case, in a lot of other countries, uh, what has happened, even in countries that started out in a much more conservative uh, Catholic place with regard to abortion like Ireland, uh, in many of these countries, uh, abortion is freely available now uh, in the first trimester Uh, but restricted to life and health exceptions in the second and third. Uh, And what has happened over the years is that the restriction in the second and third trimesters for um, health reasons of the pregnant person, uh, those have been interpreted humanely and liberally so that even mental health exceptions do get taken into account by the doctors and doctors are given uh, much more autonomy. I think one of the problems that we're facing now in the United States is that there are a lot of states that have banned abortion at like six weeks, uh, but they allow abortion to save the life of the mother. But they've defined that so narrowly, like it has to be an emergency and it can't be a mental health, like suicide risk to the mother. Uh, And doctors are so scared that even when there is something that looks like a risk to the mother. Uh, they are afraid to act because they are afraid that they are going to be prosecuted and accused of giving an abortion when there was no risk to the mother. Uh, and it's because the the reality on the ground with abortion is that often the risk to the mother is not that apparent to folks until it's too late until she's dead. You know there are infections like sepsis, which some women survive, uh, and the fact that some women survive those infections, Uh, make people think, is it really an emergency that's a threat to her life? And doctors are afraid to act. So there's a lawsuit in Texas that's going on right now uh, with women who almost died uh, because of their pregnancies. Uh, But the doctors were too afraid after the restrictive abortion laws in Texas went into effect after Dobbs. They were too afraid uh, to perform abortions, uh, even to save the life of the mother. Uh, But I think in many other countries that started Uh, in this dark place of banning almost all abortions, uh, they've evolved over time uh, to provide greater access in the first trimester and to be humane uh, and understanding about the woman's actual situation uh, in the second and third trimesters in application of the life and health exceptions. And I argue uh, my take on this is that it's because There have been ways in the law, whether through constitutional law and um, other sources of law, there are ways in which the women's role in childbearing and childrearing has been valued as uh, a public function, as something that contributes to the public good. And I think that step is really important for having an abortion law that actually values both the life of mothers as well as children, born and unborn, uh, eventually. And I think that's something that we've really missed because uh, we have insisted on treating abortion as a totally private matter uh, rather than a framework by which we think about women's role in producing something that's of importance to society, specifically children. and. and who become citizens. So I I do think that there's something to learn from a lot of the other countries that have always uh, explicitly valued caregiving and motherhood as contributing something to public life.
0: Well, many countries have had women as their heads of state, but not the United States. Is that just um, an accident of, of history, do you think?
1: Oh, I don't think it's an accident. So I think this is also something that's very important for thinking about why our um, our understanding of misogyny has direct implications not only for the status of women, but but for the future of democracy as well. So uh, one of the chapters of my book, Chapter 5, really looks at the road to women's political empowerment uh, in many of our peer democracies throughout the world, including France and Germany. And in fact, many countries now, it is very normal in many countries to have some laws uh, that are of recent vintage, the last 20, 30 years, that require Uh, gender balance in political party lists to get women elected to uh, political offices. Uh, So uh, and of course, if I tell you uh, this is it's kind of a dirty word in American politics, quota. Uh, What they have is gender quotas. Uh, And the reason we don't talk about quotas so much in American politics is that they are considered unconstitutional. If you were to adopt a law that said, we're going to have an equal number of men and women in Congress, or equal number of men and women on every uh, candidate list. Uh, And of course, in other countries, they have candidate lists because they have proportional representation systems, which are also different uh, from our winner-take-all system. Uh, But uh, it's really important that in many other countries around the world, they resolved this conflict about whether you could have equality by having gender quotas. They resolved that in the 1990s. So now the Constitution says in France and Germany, uh, there's language in the constitutions that say uh, that the law shall actually promote uh, equal access by women and men uh, to positions of social and professional responsibility. That's what it says in France. Uh, In Germany, dating back to the 1990s, they have a provision that not only says equal rights between men women no discrimination on the basis of sex. In addition, it says the law shall promote the um, actual realization of equal rights between women and men and eradicate disadvantages that now exist. Well, Professor uh, and because, sir, yeah,
0: we're, we're kind of out of time. And I did want to ask you one more question, if you can make it really brief. What do you think are the most pivotal current legal issues for women in the United States?
1: So the most pivotal issues, I think, are abortion. And we have to understand the abortion bans that are taking hold. Florida just passed a pretty restrictive one Mm -hmm. yesterday as ways of forcing motherhood Uh, and inadequately valuing women's contributions to the public good. So that's one. Uh, And the other is the one we were just talking about, uh, women's power in politics. I think we're going to see plenty of abuses of power uh, by men in politics. Not all men in politics. What about by women
0: like Marjorie Taylor Greene?
1: Yeah. So I think that...
0: um, Is she the woman for the men who are misogynists?
1: So I think... Well, there's a much more complex answer we could give to that. It's certainly true that in the, the countries that have had gender quotas, you you might say that those quotas have worked across the political spectrum. Uh, they haven't just uh, empowered progressive women. They've also uh, empowered women on the right. And so I, I think that's uh, a significant issue. Uh, if those women are also not uh, engaged in helping to pass laws that extract value from women as caregivers, Uh, and do not properly value them, uh, this is a very good way of understanding uh, what the problem is of misogyny without misogynists, i.e. women haters, that you could have these structures and you could have these structures enforced by women in politics uh, because it's to their advantage uh, to enforce misogyny, whether they're women or men, uh, because of the way in which our legal system is set up. Uh, So, And I think that's an important point here, uh, that my book is not about women haters, not about misogynists. It's about how misogyny persists, uh, even if you don't have women haters uh, who are at the helm.
0: And, and perhaps even- Of course, sometimes uh, it, we do
1: have women haters who are at the or, helm, but, which makes things misogyny worse.
0: Misogyny may exist in people who don't even think of themselves as misogynists. Uh, my, uh, my great thanks to Professor Julie C. Suk, who, Professor of Law at Fordham University School of Law. Uh, We've been discussing her book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for being on our show again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of her help in preparing this segment and to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and audio engineer Reggie Johnson for all of their invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you. We are in serious difficulties right now economically. And uh, have a a rather shaky future. So, we're hoping all of our listeners who have the means to do so make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212. Two zero nine two nine five zero, or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty, or give and the number two wbai.org. Because we need your help. Keep bringing this unique and depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, After Misogyny How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. It's by Julie C. Sook. So why not make that call right now at 212 209 2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, uh, for $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable with for as long as you want that to, to go on. And it allows us to plan for the future. And if you do that, we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. But of course, that's why we also sometimes find ourselves in financial difficulty. So if you tune in regularly to London, look at Lodge, large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York City radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the attack deductible support. And we hope that you've enjoyed today's show and can join us again next week. Have a great weekend.